Hidden Heroes, a podcast series from UNICEF. Stories about the power of women and girls. This is Hidden Heroes. I'm Beth Murphy. For more than 20 years, I've been talking to women who've dedicated their lives to making sure women and girls are treated as actual human beings in this world. Imagine. And I've noticed they have one thing in common. They all have a story that makes my jaw drop. And that's definitely true for Mary Ellsberg, who's with us today. More on her jaw-dropping backstory in a moment. First, where that journey took her. Today, she is director of the Global Women's Institute at George Washington University, where there's a research emphasis on violence against women. We were very involved in creating and advocating for the indicator on violence against women, which was finally included as one of the main indicators on the gender equality goal. Some of this very large level, 30,000 feet types of research and policy, but we also work hard to make sure that our the research we do is relevant for women and organizations on the ground. We also do a lot of training. One of the many things the training does is to give people the know-how to take a more feminist approach to humanitarian aid and international development. Why do you think it's so important to professionalize this field? You can't just sort of add gender and stir, which is the way that people used to talk about it. You develop a whole project without thinking about gender at all, and at the end you say, oh yes, and gender will be included, <laughs> and with no sort of understanding of how. So we're really trying to move the needle in that direction. I want to go back in time a little bit to uh, March 2020. The lockdown starts. Less than a month later, the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, was calling for a domestic violence ceasefire because of the horrifying global surge of domestic violence during the lockdown. I just want to read one of his tweets. He said, Peace is not just the absence of war. Many women under lockdown for COVID-19 face violence where they should be safest, in their own homes. Today, I appeal for peace in homes around the world. I urge all governments to put women's safety first as they respond to the pandemic. Did his appeal work? Well, too soon to tell, I guess. <laughs> I'm not sure that it has been connected with additional funding, for example. And there's actually a very interesting project right now. It's a COVID policy tracker where they're looking at policies around the world, both before and after COVID, and trying to see whether a real difference was made. With cases of gender-based violence skyrocketing in literally every country where data is being tracked, we found a story that really caught our attention in Ecuador, and we featured it in our last episode. An emergency hackathon was organized by UNICEF and partners. It was called Hack the Crisis, Women and Girls Edition. One team came up with something pretty ingenious and totally ordinary. Let's hear what they did in this clip of our last episode. The first voice you hear, that's a cookbook talking. The Neighbors Cookbook. Neighbor, be alert. If you recognize any of these violent acts in your life or in another neighbor's, look or give help. The violence will only increase and your life may be in danger. Your life has value. It has a purpose. You are important. You are loved. You are not alone. Neighbor, you're not alone. The law protects us. 
Entonces pensamos que de una so manera, we thought that in a camouflaged way, we could put this information about violence into a cookbook. For men, the topic of cooking and recipes isn't attractive. We'd realized that the cookbook could be hidden in the house because when men saw the cookbook, they probably wouldn't bother to sit down and read it or even destroy it. What was your takeaway from the episode? I loved the idea of the of the neighbor's cookbook and the idea of this coming out of a hackathon too, which is I think it's important to understand sometimes we think that technology is the way out and that's the solution. The reality is in low and middle income countries, more than 50% of women are offline and women are 20% less likely than men to own a smartphone. It was great that they realized that it was more increasing these networks, making sure that women didn't feel alone and really engaging community networks and neighbors and, you know, sisterhood between neighbors was the way to make sure that women didn't feel alone. And I think that the cookbook was really a beautiful project. Um, I think anything that gets women talking about these issues is really important. And uh, there were just wonderful messages in it. Remember, don't let them fool you. If it hurts, it isn't love. You deserve to be treated with love respect and trust. The most powerful words you can say are, you don't deserve this. This is not your fault. There's no excuse for violence. The abuser is always responsible for the violence. You're not responsible. And you're not alone. In countries where there are laws, just to hear that this is against the law. Those are incredibly powerful words. And for many women, it's the first time they've heard that. We want women to sort of internalize that. I actually have a right not to be treated this way. I'm a person and I deserve respect. And I think that was very much the message that was repeated over and over in the cookbook. How effective is it to pair these messages with practical advice about who to call and what to do to get help? We have to meet women where they are and help them come up with solutions that work for them in their own lives. And so one of the things that we often talk about everywhere is safety planning. And that can look really different. I've done, we just recently had a book like the cookbook, the same kinds of messages we did in a really simple, colorful format for pregnant women in Honduras during their prenatal visits, which is another time when men don't usually show up and it's a chance for them to talk among themselves. Some of these solutions, they have to be completely adapted to the circumstances, but the principles of them are really similar. We're now using a lot of the materials that we developed in Honduras in a refugee camp for um, refugees from Burundi and from um, the Democratic Republic of Congo. We found in the Honduras study that the women who were in this program were much more likely towards the end, not only to know places they could go, they knew things they could do that to keep themselves safe, and they tried them. But really interestingly and to me and, and very moving was that they, compared to a control group who didn't receive this intervention, they were much more likely to say that they felt that they could solve things in their lives. It's called self-efficacy, just the idea that you can have a difference in your own life. And I think some of those messages came through clearly also in the cookbook. 
when you talk about, you know, meeting the women where they are, it's very much solutions at the local level. And, you know, I think about the Neighbors Cookbook, it really evolved locally, listening to women, always understanding that there are barriers and risks when we're talking about gender analysis, risks, needs, capacities. And, you know, we really saw that narrative in Ecuador. Can you describe a situation where you thought you knew what the barrier was, but then realized it was different once you talked to people in the community, talked to women in the community? Yes. I think where it really came through was in our work in South Sudan, which is an area that's been at war for decades. And we had heard a lot about South Sudan, just like the Democratic Republic of Congo is well known for massive rapes, that women are gang raped, that rape is a weapon of war, and that both conflicting sides are are using rape as a way of terrorizing communities and destroying them, humiliating them. So we went to South Sudan, mostly planning to focus on conflict-related sexual violence. And and that's been a real focus of the United Nations over the last um, decade or so, too. The more we talked to them, the more we realized that intimate partner violence was as common, if not more so, and that it was something that had a huge and terrible influence on women's lives. Almost three quarters of women in some places had been beaten and raped by their husbands. And that's just usually not paid attention to in the humanitarian sector. They really think of sexual assault by combatants as being the main thing that we should worry about. All the forms of violence that women are experiencing from childhood on, you can't separate them. You can't say that which which kind of rape is worse than the other. Is it worse to be raped by somebody you don't know? Or is it worse to be raped on a daily basis by somebody who is supposed to protect you? The situation is just much more complex than we would have imagined when we first went. Throughout our conversation, Mary shared stories and research from South Sudan, Tanzania, the Solomon Islands, Democratic Republic of Congo, Nepal, and Sierra Leone. But she kept returning to one place, Nicaragua. I think the story of what's happened in the last 20 years is so important. What's happened over the last 20 years is some groundbreaking research. And for Mary, the story of Nicaragua runs even deeper than this work. It's where her own journey started in the 1970s as a social justice activist. The importance of having the numbers and being able to prove the injustice, how much of a role did that play in your transition from activist to epidemiologist? I guess it felt sort of natural to me in a way because, and this is where the link back to my father probably fits, is he went from being an analyst or researcher to an activist because he realized that the information that he was sitting on or that he was involved in was something that people needed to know about. And that's how he made the decision to release the Pentagon Papers. Mary Ellsberg's dad is Daniel Ellsberg, who, as a U.S. military analyst, released the top-secret Pentagon study, the Pentagon Papers, that proved how the U.S. presidents, one after the other, had lied about the Vietnam War. At one point, when my 13-year-old brother and I was 10 years old were on our weekend with Dad, he stopped by an office that night. Supposedly, he was going to pick something up, but he was always getting very distracted, and I was obviously very annoyed to be hanging around late at night in this office. And so he gave me as a task cutting the top secret off the tops and bottoms of the papers. 
At the time, he told us that he thought that he might go to jail for the rest of his life as a result of releasing these papers, and he wanted us to see that he was doing this deliberately and that sometimes there are things that are worth taking risks for. And I think that that certainly must have made a big impact on me because, you know, it was probably less than 10 years later I was in Nicaragua myself working to support the Sandinista revolution at the time. This is when my jaw dropped. And after the revolution was over, I realized that that's where I wanted to be. I ended up staying for 20 years. And um, it was one of the most exciting times of my life where I, I felt that I was really part of a movement to change daily life for people and to bring about social justice. And I ended up carrying out the first domestic violence study in Leon, Nicaragua, the second largest city. But it was the first study um, that measured the prevalence of violence in certainly in Central America, one of the first ones in Latin America. The title of the original 1996 study, Candies in Hell, and its follow-up, Candies in Hell Plus 20, found a massive decrease in intimate partner violence in just one generation. Its name comes from the unforgettable story of a woman named Anna Christina, who told Mary's research team, After he beat me, he would court me and buy me clothes. But my grandmother said to me, child, what are you going to do with candies in hell? Two decades later, Anna told the research team, there is more rejection of violence now. How is this possible in one generation? What we learned from Nicaragua is that the women's movement achieved a lot in terms of forcing the government to be accountable, and there was a lot of donor support. And this is the first time we've been able to see over a 20-year period that violence can be quite substantially reduced. It's not something that's inevitable that will be with us always. We, we can turn the tide on that. So how do you take some of these learnings that we have from local experiences and communities and how do we turn them into general policies and national laws and programs? We're not going to end violence by changing laws only or by having more centers for women who are abused. We really need to change the way all of us think about violence and when it is justified and why. Often in our research, we ask um, both men and women if they think that a man is justified in beating his wife under different circumstances. And it can be, you know, because she burns the food or because she goes out without telling him or argues with him or refuses to have sex. And you can tell a lot about a country by the proportion of people who believe that violence is justified. That's what's underpinning everything. That's the glue that holds violent cultures together. So just as we need to talk to women and let them know that that's not normal, that they don't deserve that, and help them create informal networks that they can support each other with, we also need to talk to the men, we need to talk to the boys and girls with similar messages that this is not normal. So I think that this cookbook is one piece of that whole social ecology that we need to work with. But of course, other things have to happen as well. During the COVID pandemic, violence against women has been described as the shadow pandemic. And the cookbook very much is about, you know, taking violence against women out of the shadows. Sometimes I, even though I'm an epidemiologist, I feel unsettled by the language of epidemics and pandemics 
because I've noticed when public health people start thinking of it that way, they start looking for easy fixes. Like just as we vaccinate for measles, now we will do something to vaccinate against violence. And it's not that easy. We can't, you know, we're going to eventually overcome coronavirus by vaccines and by mask wearing and social distancing. It will take a lot longer for us to eliminate violence against women and girls. We talk a lot about breaking the silence, being the first step to healing and being the first step to ending violence. And I think that's exactly what the cookbook and some of these other programs are trying to achieve. Hidden Heroes is a UNICEF podcast series about women's and girls' empowerment, their stories, activism, and solutions. It's produced by Principal Pictures with funding support from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. This episode of Hidden Heroes was reported and written by me, Beth Murphy. Our series is written and produced by Amory Sievertson. Sadie Zook is the associate producer. Mix and sound design by Mike Moschetto. Editing by Erica Lance. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. For more information on this series, go to unicef.org. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Do you know a hidden hero? Call 1-347-921-HERO. That's 1-347-921-4376. And tell us about a hidden hero in your life. We're excited to share these stories on social media, and maybe even in future episodes, to celebrate the hidden heroes in your community. And thanks. Thanks.